Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today, I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview. Lost in Space prop and miniature replicator, writer, researcher, and independent film studio owner, Mr. Bill Hedges. Bill is well known in the Lost in Space fan community for his detailed and screen-accurate recreations of classic Lost in Space props and sets, many of which have been realized using original components and studio blueprints from the series. As a kid, Bill fell in love with Lost in Space when it premiered in the fall of 1965 during its primetime broadcast run. After the show was canceled, Bill lived in an area where it wasn't available in syndication, but his interest in Lost in Space never wavered. It was only after the internet opened up and connected a whole world of Lost in Space fandom that Bill started realizing his childhood dream of recreating some of the fantastic worlds that Irwin Allen created over 50 years ago. What began with collecting a few pieces of control panels from the original sets eventually led to building a realistic Jupiter 2 interior. Later, he bought his old hometown movie theater building and renovated that into a working film studio, complete with partial Jupiter 2 exterior and alien landscape. Thus was born Cosmic Films Studio. Before we speak with him, a little background on Mr. Hedges. Bill lives in Lyons, Nebraska, which is about 70 miles north of Omaha. He grew up on a farm and, like a lot of kids in that era, was fascinated with the space program, astronomy, electronics, and science fiction. Lost in Space checked off all those boxes, and even though he loved the show's stories, it was the hardware and special effects that really caught his imagination. For high school graduation, his parents gave him a Super 8 movie camera, which he used to pursue his hobby of amateur filmmaking. Along the way, he managed to collect a slew of production materials from Lost in Space, including blueprints, maps, storyboards, and scripts. His research and knowledge allowed him to write several features for Flint Mitchell's famous Lost in Space Encyclopedia, which is still considered an invaluable resource in the technical aspects of the series. Since retiring from his career with the U.S. Postal Service and establishing Cosmic Film Studio, he's fully devoted himself to movie making in all its aspects from fabricating sets, modeling, writing scripts, filming, and post-production. His passion has blossomed into a remarkable story that includes his own series of sci-fi fantasy films about a cosmic cat named Penny. We're going to speak with Bill today about his love for and research about Lost in Space, his remarkable recreations of sets, props, and miniatures, and get a peek inside the world of Cosmic Films Studio. So sit back and enjoy this compelling interview with the amazing Mr. Bill Hedges. 
Mr. Bill Hedges, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast celebrating Irwin Allen's original Lost in Space. Well, thanks, Lane. It's an honor to uh, be interviewed by you. Oh, yeah. It was great to meet you at Wonderfest, too, and when you came out here to visit. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, yes. I had the honor of meeting you in person for the first time at that 2018 Wonderfest convention, along with a bunch of the guys from the B9 Robot Builders Club. That was the first time I'd ever been to anything like that, but meeting you was special. I should mention, by the way, for our listeners out there, that we're recording this interview in September of 2018. Most of what we're going to talk about today is what they call evergreen, but there may be a few time-sensitive topics that we mention, so just keep that in mind if you're listening to this uh, in the year 2100 or something like that. Like many people in the Lost in Space fan community, I already knew of you because of your amazing show-related creations that you've built and shared online over the years, as well as the incredible research that you've conducted and written about over the years. So I'm, I'm very fascinated by that. And we're going to get into all that, but I did want to say we recently, my wife and I had the opportunity to come visit you out in Lyons, Nebraska, your hometown, and thanks so much for the gracious hospitality you showed us. I was really blown away, I have to say, getting the chance to visit you there in Nebraska and experiencing firsthand what I would call just the world that you've created. It's like going to Disneyland for a Lost in Space fan. I, I didn't want to leave. Well, it's a pleasure to have you there. It's uh, not too often that I actually have such a big uh, Lost in Space fans visit. You know, sometimes it's uh, just to visit the studio, or uh, sometimes they come just because it's um, built into a theater, which they used to go to at one time. Well, I want to get into all of that, but before we do, I want to start where I do with all the guests that come on the show, and that's back at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about when, where, and how you first experienced Lost in Space. Well, that would have been in the... Uh, summer of uh, 1965, and I'd already fell in love with it before it even premiered, because uh, I'd been seeing the uh, promos for it all summer, and uh, I was all ready for it. That was uh, really exciting for me to anticipate it coming on, so I was an uh, instant fan even before it aired. First-run broadcast uh, Lost in Space fan here, folks. That's pretty cool. Now, how old would you have been at the time, Bill, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, I was 13 then. Oh, perfect age, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I always forget exactly how old was Will Robinson supposed to be at the start of the show. Do we know that for a fact? It seemed like he was about 10 or so. Yeah. 10, 12. It was kind of nebulous, but right in that ballpark, yeah. you know. I think I was about the age of uh, Penny. I got it. Okay. But still, I mean, how cool is that? So Yeah. Yeah. So you saw it when it was on original broadcast. That must have been very cool. Now... I want to shift gears just a second here. When we came out to visit you, we flew into Omaha, and then we drove, uh, I think it was a little over an hour north to see you there in Lyons, and it really is a charming community. Can you describe your hometown for our listeners? Yes, it's a, uh, a small farm town in eastern Nebraska, and it's the population 851, and this is where I grew up. You know, it's uh, kind of an ideal, you know, Frank Capra-type town. Well, it really is. It's cool. It even has uh, brick streets. It is like taking a step back in time. So we really enjoyed that aspect of visiting you. Getting back to Lost in Space, what was it about the show that really intrigued you the most, Bill? I think it was pretty much the uh, the hardware of the show more than anything. I just love the uh, Jupiter 2, the Chariot, you know, and then, of course, later, the Space Pod. Mm. 
I just loved the you know the whole idea of the Jupiter two that it was a personal you know vehicle basically, and you know the family it was all together and they could travel around and you know go to all these fantastic worlds. I just thought it was, uh, it was such a fascinating uh, series, and I thought you know I knew there would never be anything as good as this. So. <laughs> yeah. Did you collect any of the merchandising or memorabilia that was available at the time? A few things. Uh, we didn't have a, a lot of it uh, sold here in Lyons and didn't get to the city very often, but I did collect uh, the Tops cards and the Viewmaster and also the book and the Aurora Cyclops and the robot. Oh, the model and, kits, yeah. Yeah. So I, I got those you know, still to this day yet. Oh, that's cool. Well, I only asked because when we visited you, I was blown away by your... <laughs> Your memorabilia collection, not just for Lost in Space, for a lot of uh, TV and movie properties, but the Lost in Space stuff is pretty cool. So it started young. <laughs> what other interests did you have at the time growing up? What were you into? Like I said, I grew up on a farm, so we had you know big night skies. So I was got interested in astronomy, and my folks got me a little telescope. And then also my uncle had a TV shop, and he gave me a you know, voltmeter and his old army electronic books so that uh, got me interested in electronics so i felt like i had that in common with will oh cool and then later uh you know because of lost in space and star trek particularly the uh, book making of star trek got me interested in uh you know filmmaking because it told all about the uh, behind the scenes stuff that went on and then for graduation my uh, folks bought me a super 8 movie camera so i started making my own little films oh and then over the years you know just kept you know, graduating to more, you know, sophisticated cameras, too. And, the, you know, the Super 8 sound came out. And then you went through different versions of that. And then, you know, finally uh, VHS recorders and mini DVD until finally uh, I, I use uh, just uh, you know, mirrorless cameras now. Oh, yeah. But it is interesting to me when I'm listening to you. It's uh, filmmaking, but in particular, the special effects or trick photography parts of it seem to be of interest. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, that was more what I was interested in when I was a kid, uh, do, trying to replicate some of the special effects, which was hard to do with Super 8. I, I even made a crude optical printer so I could put in, uh, you know, beams, you know, coming down like uh, the matter transfer machine or, you know, do, doing some crude, you know, matte shots, too. Mm. Wow. Getting back to the show. So first run fan, then the show goes off the air in 1968. Did you maintain an active interest in it? Well, I was really disappointed when it finally was canceled. And in Nebraska here, we didn't even have it in uh, syndication afterwards. So I never did see it again. So all I had to do to keep the memories of that alive was just my uh, cards and, you know, what I already had. Uh, until I had subscribed to magazines like Starlog and, mm -hmm. you know, occasionally get articles about loss of space and that. And then also uh, the fanzines, I would subscribe to them, too, which were kind of hit and miss. Yeah. But, you know, one of the better uh, fanzines uh, was probably Flint Mitchell's, and he was uh, published those. He was a great contributor to uh, keeping the show alive, conducting interviews. And you know, a lot of those people that he conducted interviews with are probably the only, uh, you know, record records of uh, their involvement in Lost in Space, which is nice that he preserved them. Oh, it sure is. And then down the line, and we'll talk about it, you actually uh, helped contribute to Flint Mitchell's Lost in Space Encyclopedia. So that was kind of a dry spell if you were a Lost in Space fan, especially where you were, not being able to get it in syndication. It speaks to how much you enjoyed the show that you did keep up as well as you could. So then 
something happened to all of us <laughs> for a variety of things, and that was the takeoff of the internet. You mentioned to me before that really changed the way that Lost in Space fans connected and rekindled their interest in the show. Did you become active in the online fan scene right away? And talk a little bit about that. Yeah, as soon as it came out, I was in some of the early Lost in Space you know, groups. And it was really interesting that you know I found out that I wasn't the biggest Lost in Space fan anymore. I actually realized there was just many others uh, you know, quite a few others that were just as passionate about it as I was, <laughs> being able to connect to them and share information, and yeah, I learned a lot of things, and oh, and sure. I was glad that you know, still uh, people are still interested, and in after all those years too. Oh yeah, it sure is. Well, I'm kind of a newbie to this online fan scene. I mean, I've gotten involved with the podcast and everything. I'm blown away at how much Lost in Space fan activity there is online. On Facebook is probably the biggest spot, but there's other forums and groups and web pages and stuff, and, and quite a few what I would call niche groups as well, people that just want to talk about the robot or just want to talk about the Jupiter 2. And the stuff that you see there and the pictures and the information and the research, it's, it's really fascinating. And you're no small contributor to that as well, because eventually you also decided to take your fandom to a step beyond, and you actually started collecting pieces from the actual show that were used on that. Tell us how that started and where that took you. That was uh, probably resulted from uh, uh, seeing on the internet about Jeff Story's uh, recreation of the uh, flight deck using uh, original panels that he had purchased from prop houses. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so fantastic that he was able to find all these original panels from the actual uh, Jupiter 2. He did have some extra stuff, and he also had a fanzine, too. And he uh, was uh, had a website where he was actually uh, offering to sell some of his extra pieces. And I thought it would be so fantastic just to actually purchase a piece you know, that actually had a tangible connection to my favorite show. So I did end up getting a couple of uh, uh, control panels from him. Oh, wow. What pieces would that have been? Can you describe them? Yeah, one was a Cardatron panel that was behind Penny's freezing tube. I could actually match it up to her freezing tube because they were all the uh, different panels behind them were you know, the six panels were all a little bit different as far as their, uh, you know, light arrangement and the way they blinked and as they build to match it up with hers. And the other panel was a uh, Sage power panel. Uh, there was 10 of them in the lower deck, different places, the observatory and the uh, lab, and then also a couple in the galley. Hmm. So, and, they, and you know for a fact those were actually used in the original sets, is that correct? Yeah, of course, I was able to match up pennies exactly, but the Sage panel also had uh, Fox written on the back of it, too. Wow. Well, it's interesting because when we visited you, I learned a lot about, you know, how the art directors and the set designers, they actually used a great deal of government and industry surplus computer and and military electronic gear as parts of the Lost in Space technology featured on the show. But just kind of describe what we're talking about here. Well, probably the uh, you know most iconic panel they had was the uh, Burroughs B205 consoles that were on the flight console. Burroughs was a uh, computer company that, well, they went way back to adding machines, but in 1956, they bought out Electrodata, which was an early computer uh, manufacturer. Because they were tube-based, computers became obsolete. And they ended up selling uh, you know, all the old computers, a lot of them to uh, prop houses. And the prop houses would uh, you know, convert them to uh, you know, props for different movies. And they were actually used in a lot of movies besides Lost in Space. 
And for the burrows, they originally had neon uh, bulbs in there, but they replaced them with incandescent bulbs so they'd be brighter and make them more visible under the studio lights. Okay, so the Burroughs 205s, and correct me if I'm wrong, these are sort of the ubiquitous, more or less rectangular-shaped consoles that you see. There's, I think there's like three of them placed above the flight control console and the Jupiter 2, and they have a, a vast array of interesting-looking flashing lights. Is that what we're talking about right now? Yes, and uh, I think that's why they're so popular, too, because uh, with all the flashing lights, it makes the uh, computers actually look like they're doing something, mm-hmm. whereas modern computers is just a black box, and they aren't interesting to look at. They had all the uh, lights wired up to a mechanical cam-driven timer, so they would you know, make it look like it was flashing uh, randomly. Well, they're very interesting to look at, and I was always fascinated with them when I was a kid. And you're right. I know for a fact I've seen those on several different shows, not just the other Irwin Allen shows, but I remember distinctly that another one of my favorites, Batman, there were lots of those scattered around the Batcave, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and uh, even movies like uh, Angry Red Planet, which had a Lost in Space actor in it, Gerald Moore. Mm-hmm. You know, another uh, common panels that was used on the show is these long and narrow uh, SAGE panels. And SAGE uh, stands for Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, which was an early warning radar system. And as they became obsolete, too, uh, the prop houses would buy them and rewire them and add flashing lights to them. Mm. They were uh, 34 inches long, you know, full size. Oh, okay. They had several versions of it on the flight console, but they actually cut them down to smaller dimensions. They were used on uh, next to the radars, and they were cut down to 16 inches. And then also there was a couple of them on the uh, transmitter, which were cut down even shorter to 12 inches. And there was a couple of them the space pod, you know, the full-length ones. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So those were panels that basically had different kinds of switches on them, if I'm recalling correctly, like little paddle switches and things like that. Is that correct? Yes. They were uh, also used in a lot of alien machines, too. Uh, anytime they needed uh, to make a uh, special prop for uh, an episode, they would just add one of those. That's very cool. So you start off collecting a few of these original pieces from the sets. Eventually, that inspired you to take it to the next level, where you actually built a Jupiter 2 interior setup in the lower level of your house. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? After I got the uh, panels, I thought rather than just display them uh, you know, by themselves, it'd be kind of fun to actually incorporate them into uh, you know, the actual uh, cabinets that they originally were in. So I drew up different designs you know, to put them in an empty room I had in my basement. But then I went to a convention and I saw a flight console that Pat Burns had made from scratch. And it, was, it had the radars and the B-205s. After I saw that, I thought, I can't do any less than this. This is just incredible. Mm. So at the convention, I had, was taking photos photographs of it and measuring it. And I uh, drew up a plan to actually, uh, you know, make the uh, full-size flight console in my basement. Uh, some of the panels I had were from the lower deck, too. I actually had to incorporate, you know, some of the lower deck parts of the spaceship. I ended up adding a little you know, section of the lab, the observatory, and even a little part of the stateroom, too, with the mm-hmm. bed and the desk that folds down. Oh, yeah, it's very cool. So you get, like, little flavors. I mean, it's not the full set, obviously, but you've even got uh, one of the Jacob's Ladders, I think, right next to your flight console, which is one of Kurt's favorite props from the show, and it actually works. That had to be quite a challenge to put that together. Was it? How long did it take you to do that? Uh, after I built the individual panels, it probably took me about a year and a half to actually build the um, set into the room. 
Well, it's a very immersive experience to be down there, Bill, because you really start to lose yourself when you're down there. If you like the show, show and you've even got one of the, uh, the flight deck chairs sitting there, right? Yeah, that that was a replica that I made. Because I actually uh, was able to uh, buy some of the uh, copies of the original blueprints. So and one of them was uh, for the flight chair. So uh, I was able to replicate that. Oh, yeah. Well, that kind of leads me to the next question I was going to ask you. So tell us what other sorts of research materials you've used to fulfill this dream of having your own Jupiter 2 world in your home. Well, uh, if I have the blueprint for it, I'll actually base it on that. But also, if they aren't available, uh, use just the DVDs, do screen grabs, and then try and scale it from them. Also, I had uh, met some friends who had some other original panels. And when I was visiting them, they let me make molds of the knobs and measure everything and photograph it and document it. So when I got home, then I was able to uh, replicate all those panels uh, that I didn't have. And that since they were based on the uh, original panels, that they're about as accurate as I could make them. Well, that's the thing about it. You know, something as tiny of a detail, folks, as this particular knob that's next to the radar screen, Bill wasn't satisfied just grabbing any particular knob. You wanted to have something that was as close to the original as possible. So you've gone to the to the nth degree. So you see this essentially what is almost like a museum replica of these sets and everything. And it's amazing. It's something to behold, Bill. I don't know how you found time to do all that. And of course, you weren't finished <laughs> at, at that point. But I have to ask you, are there any mysteries remaining, things about the sets or things that just kind of, to this day, you're still scratching your head about or you haven't been able to nail down? One of the biggest mysteries that uh, I'm always curious about is uh, something I saw on a blueprint that I had, but uh, I never saw it on the show, and th these were some uh, panels that were made to uh, slide out from either side of the uh, viewport window, and they were about you know as high as the viewport and about you know two feet long. Apparently, it was a like a retrofit that was built in for the uh, beginning of the uh, second season. Mm. For whatever reason, after they build them, they never actually even used them. But I know they actually exist because I actually did see a picture of one that was for sale at one time. And I, when I saw it, I thought, oh, this isn't used on Lost in Space. And it wasn't until later and I saw those blueprints that I realized that it was. And we did actually get to see the outside of them in one episode, the deadliest of the species, where the uh, crash seals uh, apparently are closing. But what you're actually seeing is that mystery panel panel closing on the inside of the viewport for just a, a fraction of a second. Yeah, you mentioned that to me, and I think you might have even shown me that particular blueprint. It was something I'd never even known existed until you mentioned it. They went to all the trouble of making it and then really never even used it for its intended function. That is a mystery. If you look closely at the viewport, you can actually uh, see where the modifications are because they had to move the uh, Burroughs consoles in a little bit so there would be room from the slide behind it. Mm, interesting. And that leads me to another subject, though. You wrote several excellent articles for, you've already mentioned Flint Mitchell's publications, but for his Lost in Space Encyclopedia. And it is a great resource for super fans of the series. I just recently got my disc copy of that, and I'm trying to go through that, but it's pretty immense. I wanted to ask you a few questions from some of your articles, which are really great. And I want to start off with the one that you wrote called Where to Find Preplanus. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, a few years ago, there was a group of about 12 of us that 
went out to uh, find some of the original filming locations. This is just a couple hours outside of L.A., and one of the places is Red Rock Canyon by Ridgecrest, California, and the other is uh, the Trona Pinnacles, which is you know about 20 miles away from that. And this is where they filmed a lot of the stock footage for uh, uh, the chariot driving across the uh, planet, also the uh, rocket belt and the Cyclops, too. After they had filmed this, uh, you know, over about four days in the winter of uh, 64, they would continue to use, you know, those same stock clips whenever they need to show the chariot. So, yeah, the only other time they uh, used the chariot was actually on the stage, you know, where they could only drive it 20 feet or so, or there was a a time, too, at the uh, studio moat. It must have been cool to actually go out to that location. Is it pretty much the same as it was back in 1964 when you visited did you did you definitely get the feel you were looking at lost in space uh <laughs> location scene yeah it was really exciting when we were at red rock canyon to actually find the uh, the same rock that the uh, jupiter 2 flew by well it would have been the gemini in the uh, pilot that was exciting because you could actually recognize it as soon as you saw it you know it was surprising that it was you know so much smaller than i was expecting but you know, of course it was you know, made to look like it was a uh, 48 foot jupiter 2 flying past it but that was fun to actually uh, see that and uh, phil lublin he uh, actually brought a two-foot jupiter 2 and we strung it up on two wires like they did on the original filming, and we actually tried to get that to fly across past that rock like they originally did. So that was a fun day to do yeah. that. Yeah, recreating the old uh, Lidecker method of uh, flying a spaceship, huh? Yeah. Ah, that's cool. Now, did you bring anything with you? Yes, I, uh, I had fixed up a uh, one-tenth scale uh, radio-controlled chariot. I took that out there, too, and we filmed that at Red Rock Canyon and also at the Trona Pinnacles. And we're you know trying to you know, have it drive past some of the original type uh, landmarks too. Oh, that is so cool! Now, is this film footage available online someplace? Can we can we look at some yeah, of this it, stuff? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Uh, I got several videos where we were out there, and Phil Hamilton also made some uh, videos of it while we were out there too. So he did did some excellent uh, videos where he actually compares the the footage to the uh, original clips, so you can see where everything was. Oh, okay, because I'll definitely get those links, and we'll have those in the show notes for the interview, because uh, that's something I want to take a look at, and I'm sure a lot of listeners would like to do it as well. So, oh, that is so cool. I'm excited. That had to be great. Now, what year was that you went out uh, there? I think that was uh, 2013. Okay, okay, so not that long ago. It's cool to think, because this is all like parkland, right? Yeah, Bureau of Land Management. I, I took a bunch of uh, printouts, photos from screen grabs from the show, so I could, you know, aid me to identify them. And, and then I'd walk around, and it's always exciting when you can actually match up the photo you had with the actual, uh, you know, view that you had. And then also at the Throne of Pinnacles, that found the rock that the uh, rocket belt flew around. Mm. That was uh, fun to find that, too, and where the uh, invaders from the fifth dimension spaceship landed. And also the Keeper spaceship, you know, landed in the you know, same spot. You could find the exact spot where they must add the camera setup. Yeah, I love that footage. That's so great. Such an iconic location. And but. the thing is, 
that's the uh, closest you can actually get to being on the set because uh, it's virtually the same. You know, it takes quite a while for the rocks to wear down. So mm-hmm. they haven't changed much, but all the uh, sets that were on the lot, all the back lots, been sold off. So that's no longer there, and the stages that they filmed on are still there, but can't really see anything that was still related to Lost in Space. Yeah. Well, before we move on, because I do want to talk about the sound stages, because that's another area of expertise you have, the name Preplanus. So far, I've only heard that once, and that was on the episode Return from Outer Space, I believe. What do we know about that name, and is it ever used again? Or No, it's, I was lucky enough to get one of uh, the associate producers' uh, a bundle of production materials, which was involved in with the return from outer space, and it has all the different versions of the script from the first draft, you know, up to the final revision. All the storyboards, you know, casting sheets, and you know, shooting schedules. And in the script, you can see where they uh, revised it so much. And one of the lines they had left out, uh, Will said, uh, you know, told him that they came from Preplanus. And he, all he said was that that's just the name that they decided to call it. So, but that line was actually left out on the episode. So, hmm. there's that's no mystery to it. It's just uh, what the Robinsons decided to call the planet. It was already named that. Interesting. And how do you spell Preplanus? Curious minds want to know. Well, on the uh, script, it's spelled uh, P-R-I-P-L-A-N-U-S. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's. That's what I thought. I just don't have a script to compare it to. Okay, so that's official, folks. It's pre-planus, pre-planus. You've already alluded to the sound stages that were used for filming and what sets and actions were filmed where, and that was something you covered in detail in one of your articles in the Lost in Space Encyclopedia. Can you give us a little shorthand journey through the uh, filming locations on the Fox lot for Lost in Space? Basically, for the first season, they used uh, three stages for their standing sets. You know, stage 11 was where the upper deck of the Jupiter 2 was uh, built. You know, contrary to what it appears to be, the the lower deck was on a different stage. So if they would go down in the elevator, they actually had a pit below the elevator and the ladder where they'd uh, go down to. And I think it was like 8 foot by 16 foot. Mm. So uh, the uh, stage 11 was basically used for the... uh, Jupiter 2 upper deck and also the uh, campsite out in front. How big of a stage would that have been? That was uh, 125 by 130 feet. Okay, okay. So that's not that's not a small piece of real estate there. And then so they had the upper deck. Do I understand this correctly? So when you're looking, you're standing outside the Jupiter 2, you're looking in through the viewport, you're seeing the interior set of the upper deck as well there, right? That's all one unit, correct? Yes, uh, you know, that's kind of rare for uh, most uh, sets in Hollywood where they actually incorporate the exteriors and the interiors because most of the time, if you're uh, going out from an interior, there's actually just a painted backdrop, you know, that shows the exterior. But it was nice that they were actually able to incorporate both the interior and the exterior into that stage. Yeah. You know, the one of the interesting things I got to see is you built a little diorama, a model, essentially, of that stage 11, actually showing a, a scene being filmed from, I think it was from Wish Upon a Star. And it really illustrates the setup very well. So you have basically this rectangular, it's almost really almost a square-shaped soundstage. And the Jupiter 2 is sitting on sort of on one side. And three sides of that soundstage are basically set up to be filmed with a fourth side is, you know, not ever seen on camera. What would we see? around those three sides of the stage that uh, the camera would be filming? Well, around the three walls, they had a uh, 
painted cyclorama of the sky. That went up to about upper part of the uh, stage, maybe 40 feet or so. Uh, in front of that, to uh, make it look more like a vast planet, they would have these hill cutouts. They actually uh, got those from another movie, Fox movie. Then another uh, area in front of that, they had these ground rolls, and that would kind of transition from the actual stage floor to the hills to make it look like it was uh, more of a gradual transition to the distance. Mm -hmm. And lots of sand, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Lots of sand. And then some actual prop rocks or boulders were also set around that camp area. So it kind of created a three-dimensional illusion. So it's really cool to see that. And then on the fourth wall, that's basically never seen on camera, that's more or less access, correct? Yes, that was kind of their staging area, you know, where they had you know seats for the actors to you know rest while between the scenes. And then there was also what's called an elephant door, which was about uh, 16 foot wide and 22 foot high, and this is where they would drive the chariot in. Mm-hmm. And when they didn't need the chariot in the scene, uh, they'd just park it in the parking lot outside there. Yeah. If you look in your diorama through the little elephant door you've got there, you're sort of like at eye level for the little figurines, and it's it's kind of like being there on the set. So kudos to you for that. <laughs> um, oh, I was going to say, and of course, they didn't have to finish out the hall in the back of the Jupiter 2 because that was never visible. So the uh, Jupiter 2 is actually never, you know, doesn't have a complete hall that goes all the way around it. Yeah. It seems like it maybe, does it go almost halfway around, something like that? Yeah, it's about halfway. Uh-huh. And the yeah. you know the walls were wild too, so they could remove them if they wanted to film you know from the outside looking in, mm-hmm. like they did in the pilot. Very clever. Yeah. So that's stage eleven, upper deck of the Jupiter two in the campsite area around it. And then you said you said there was a couple other stages they used quite a bit. Yeah, for the uh, lower deck, it was located on a different stage, uh, stage uh, five, which was a. Uh, uh, 210 feet long by 133. So it's um, much larger than the uh, stage 11. And then besides the lower deck, they also used it for caves or anything else they need to build. Mm, that is a big stage. Okay. And then, so was there another stage as well, you said? Yeah. Uh, stage six was the same size as uh, stage five. And this was used primarily for uh, just planet sets. Uh, Any time they were away from the Jupiter 2, they would usually be filmed on this set. So, for instance, uh, they would have the Keeper uh, spaceship on this set or whatever alien uh, uh, spaceship they uh, encountered or Mm -hmm. machines, like the matter transfer machine or something. So I believe I recall you said this stage 6 also had like a cyclorama on three sides or three walls as well. Yeah, so they could... You know, make it look like a large vista hmm. in the background. And, of course, they use some other parts of the Fox lot as needed. Like I think you mentioned in the article, they, they might have used a different stage for miniature work. And there was also another location that they used we've referred to called the moat. I think that was like an outdoor concrete tank or rock wall or something like that. We've seen it in several of these episodes. Yeah, this was the uh, concrete cliff wall on one side. It kind of sloped up to it so uh, they could fill it with water if they needed to. Mm. And this is where you actually saw the uh, miniature uh, uh, chariot enter the inland sea. Mm. But also, they would, whenever they wanted to film, uh, you know, something outside too. Uh, they had some caves there too, so it was used in invaders in from the the fifth dimension and yeah. the oasis. Yeah, I think they used it significantly in uh, my friend Mister Nobody as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. 
So that was the setup, stage 11, stage 5, and stage 6 for seasons 1 and then seasons 2. But then they did a little bit of a switcheroo for season 3, am I right? Yes, their budget was cut, so they uh, tried to get by with using just two stages. So for that season, they took the Jupiter 2 out of stage 11 and used that for the uh, planet sets Mm. instead of stage... uh, Six, and then they uh, put both the uh, Jupiter 2 upper deck and the lower deck on stage uh, 17. So they had both sets on the same stage. Did that impact the filming very much that you can tell watching the episodes? You really can't tell too much because although if you did look out the uh, airlock from the uh, upper deck, you would actually be looking at the lower deck, which was you know right next to it. So if they ever had to film that, they would would have had to put up like a planet backdrop in you know, mm. between them to disguise mm. it. Yeah, well, I think if I recall correctly in your article, you did mention that because of the, the relocation to stage 17, now there was no longer a pit for the upper deck. So basically they weren't able to use the elevator or, or the little ladder way going from upper deck to lower deck in season three. Is that right? Yeah, they uh, they could use the elevator, but it would just go down the uh, you know the height of the uh, the floor, which is like one and a half feet above the uh, the stage floor. I see. So you you could actually see them start to go down, then you just let your imagination you know assume that they'd continue down. Mm-hmm. Well, I take it they also used some other locations, as you mentioned, around the Fox lot, and some of them were kind of clever, like repurposing <laughs> existing studio buildings for different locations. Correct. Yeah, uh, for the episode uh, Visit to a Hostile Planet, they actually used the uh, full-size Jupiter 2 on the landing legs, which they had only done uh, two times before that. And they filmed that in front of the uh, mill and prop departments. And then they just uh, made some uh, different signs to put over it to make it look like it was in Michigan. Yeah, that was that was kind of clever the way they did that. But, you know, speaking of that full-scale Jupiter 2 prop, it was only used a few times in the entire series, wasn't it? Yeah, it was uh, used for the derelict. And then for Island in the Sky, you know, before they had the other... Uh, Jupiter 2 ready, they actually use that. But since it sits up, you know, five feet, the the, uh, upper deck uh, is five feet above the uh, stage floor, they actually had to bank it up quite a bit and make a long ramp for the the robot to come down. Okay, that explains why the crash site looks so different in Island in the Sky than it does in the rest of the series. Because like you say, it's almost like it's sitting up on top of a a hill, you know, with this long sand ramp coming down from it. In fact, you could sort of see the lower deck edges a lot more clearly, but later on, the set is just basically almost buried up to the, you know, the seam line around the perimeter of the ship. It's it's quite a difference, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I always just thought, well, they did some they did some landscaping <laughs> while, the, while they were there to make it look a little bit better. Also, when they used that for Island in the Sky, that was the only time you could actually see the, uh, the roof of the Jupiter 2 because uh, the uh, set they used afterwards uh, only had the walls going up so high and then there was no roof. So what they had there, they had an open top roof there, so you could actually uh, mount lights there and made it easier to light the upper deck. Very clever. You know, and that's one of those things never occurred to me that you never see the roof like that. Now I'll be looking for that. Hey, yeah, that must be about where the set set stops there, because we never look up any higher than that. And if you look at, you know, some of the uh, shots, too, it looks like the, uh, you know, the hull goes up excessively higher than it should be because they made it longer just in case the camera actually uh, caught it a little bit too high and you wouldn't see uh, that there's nothing there. So, mm. Well, it's all part of that uh, 
the magic of illusion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. So another thing that I learned reading some of your stuff is, and of course I got to see some of the stuff, is you have this amazing collection of replica props from the show. And you talked about the originals in your articles, many of which, besides just the computer panels we talked about previously, were kind of like off-the-shelf items that they just repurposed. What? Tell us about a few of those that might interest the listeners. Well, one of the uh, most used items was probably the uh, flashlight, which was just a uh, Dynalite flashlight that you could buy back then. And the reason they used that was because it's a super bright flashlight, which would uh, show up well under the uh, studio lights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have one of those. So I got to see that in person and hold it. It's pretty cool, even though it was something that was uh, commercially available at the time. I guess you could. St- you told me you could still find them uh, like on eBay or something. Yeah. They come in different colors. It's you know, harder to find the white ones like they had. But another thing was the ion generator that uh, Smith had, which was uh, just a, a little uh-huh. small uh, flashlight that uh, you can still occasionally find, too. Yes, you had some of those in the original packaging. But, of course, they did modify those slightly, didn't they? Yeah, they would add a couple of dome lights to them just to make them a little bit different. Yeah. Another thing was also uh, tape recorders. They just used off-the-shelf tape recorders. But, you know, for one, they would actually just cover up the uh, brand names. Yeah, there were several interesting scenes in some of the early episodes where Dr. Smith is making tape recordings, either <laughs> dictating a book or his last message to the world. He's leaving in a time capsule or something like that. It's it's one of those things that's kind of amusing because, you know, the show is set theoretically in the future of 1997, you know, which is 30 years in the future from when it was actually filmed, but they're still using pretty recognizable technology that was available. But it, it, I don't know, I, it, it always kind of makes me smile to see some of that stuff. And it's it's kind of fun to search for that on eBay, too. Uh, they use like these uh, Melmac plates, these, these green plates, and they're still pretty common to find. And Oh, you mean like the dinnerware that they eat? Yeah. Uh, uh, what's that called again? Uh, Melmac. Melmac, okay. Yeah. yeah. Melmac was the... Uh, green plates that they had and the uh, uh, insulated cups they had with they were burrite mm. i found those on ebay and those even are... something like uh, uh the book that penny was reading and uh, wish upon a star was a nancy uh, drew book mm. and they just had that it taped over where it actually you would see any identification on it because they didn't want to show something that was copyrighted Yep. Well, they borrowed a lot of props also from other Fox movies, and we kind of alluded to that as well. You mentioned several of the props that show up repeatedly were from a movie called uh, Iron Man Flint, if I got that right. Yeah, that was a Fox movie that was made the year before. So a lot of the props that they had were uh, used extensively on Lost in Space also. Uh, there was a disintegration unit on Armand Flint, and that was made up of uh, these arches, which would be later used quite a bit. And also the uh, matter transfer machine was sitting on top of those arches in the movie. Mm. Also the distiller that was used in that movie too, that was either used for fuel distillation or for water. Oh yeah, that goofy piece of equipment. That, that looks very futuristic. So that came from Armand Flint as well, huh? Yeah. And if you watch the movie, you can even see other panels that were used, too. Very neat. So they could actually have some pretty uh, great-looking props without having to spend a lot of money uh, for them, because they could just rent them or you know, get them from the prop house. Indeed. 
I hope you're enjoying this fascinating interview with Lost in Space recreator and independent film studio mogul Bill Hedges as much as I am. Bill's impressive work researching and recreating the props and locations used on the series are amazing. He's got more to share about his passion for the hardware of Lost in Space, his filmmaking, and much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Mr. Bill Hedges. I enjoyed all of your articles from the Lost in Space Encyclopedia. They're very informative and they're a good read, and I encourage everybody to take a gander at those. One of the articles that I really enjoyed reading was titled uh, The Making of an Episode. You referred to it earlier that you used a copy of producer Jerry Briskin's script for the episode Return from Outer Space, and you kind of walk through the evolution of that episode from... You know, from the very beginning until the final copy of that we saw filmed for the show. And it was really interesting. There are a lot of details that were revealed by that. What generally did you learn from looking at that shooting script? You can see how much the budget influenced it because they had started out with Will landing in a cow pasture, and then there was also a scene at a ballpark, and you'd see those uh, you know scenes disappear you know, as it went through different revisions just to save money. You know they even were going to show a shot of a hyper uh, a supersonic jet flying by, but they cut that back out to just uh, to save money. Yeah. Well, originally, it, they even changed the title, right? Wasn't it called something different? Uh... Yeah, it was originally Home Sweet Home. A lot of episodes uh, had their names changed from what the original writers had uh, written. Yeah. Well, it was very interesting to see all the extra stuff in there, but there were pr- some particular plot points that were also changed, not just to save money, but uh, based on input from either Irwin Allen or the story editor or whatever. But there was a particular plot point involving Will and the bottle of carbon tetrachloride. Yeah, throughout every script that I have, when Will returns with the bottle of carbon tetrachloride, it turns out that it wasn't really necessary that he brought it back because in the meantime, while he was gone, Don came up with a alternative turpentine substitute for it. So, you know, that made the uh, point of the uh, bringing that back completely uh, useless. So, but then the, they must have changed it f- uh, for some reason, you know, maybe the editor even changed it, but uh, they added it where uh, Will was the one that saved the day bringing that back. Oh, man. I am so happy they didn't do that. Nothing against Don. I mean, he is a smart guy and everything, but uh, I think the story is so much better and sweeter that Will actually brings back what they needed for the food purifier, and it would have just kind of undermined that if they had figured out another replacement in the meantime. So I don't know about you, but I like it better the way it showed up on film. Oh, yeah. I like them all uh, the way I remember watching them originally. Yes, yes. By the way, how many original Lost in Space scripts do you own? Well, they're, uh, I own uh, a couple of original ones, uh, like I said, uh, Jerry Briskins, and then also one of the Bob May scripts for the robot. And he has all his uh, lines marked. And now sometimes he'd also add, you know, correct uh, things that the writers had wrote, too, because they might say uh, it doesn't compute. 
and he had to change it to it does not compute because mm-hmm. everybody knows that robots don't speak in uh, contractions. Oh no! <laughs> uh, but you have copies, right, of all the episodes, a script. For yeah, the I did. I did end up uh, acquiring copies of all the episodes that were ever used, and you know sometimes different versions of them too. They're really interesting too because uh, some of them are pretty much just like what you see on the show, but a lot of them have details in them that were never filmed because they shortened it up or they you know changed it in later revisions. Yeah. There was another article I wanted to mention real briefly, and that was one I enjoyed. It was called What Might Have Been. And that's where you go over several interesting details, you know, way too many to cover them all, but some interesting details of things that might have turned out differently. And you mused about that. Give us an idea of a few things that you uh, discussed in that article. Well, this all came about just from uh, reading the scripts. And the the pilot was probably the... uh had the most changes. After they crashed and uh, took off in the chariot to avoid the heat, like they did in the, there were giants in the earth, but in the pilot script, they actually stayed away uh, on the other side of the inland sea for about six months. Mm. And they were really going to have a little colony there. Well, that changed quite a bit. Yeah, and there are also hints that they they spent time actually doing a little bit more cultivation, maybe even domesticating some animals and things like that. And we never really saw that in the series, did we? He just got glimpses of it once, you know, one while when they used some footage from the pilot because they did have some fences there for the animals and. You get a glimpse of like some ostrich-like critters, it looked like, in the distance there, but they, they never really showed back up in later episodes, did they? No. That was yeah. pretty clever how they were able to incorporate the original footage from the pilot, though. It was very clever. It was very well done. Well, another thing I think you mentioned in that article was the topic of Cyclops encounters. We get the one really cool one, and there were giants in the Earth, but I guess maybe we might have seen more? Yeah, there was uh, in one of the scripts that uh, said how Penny actually uh, encountered one of the Cyclops. And I think she gave him a flower, and you can actually see in some of the publicity shots the uh, Cyclops holding that flower. That would have been interesting. Yeah, it's always been a mystery to me why they had that one Cyclops, and then you never see them show up again on the planet. It would have been nice to have that be a recurring threat from time to time, but such is life. Uh, You know, another mystery that people bring up, and I think you might have addressed it in this article as well, I could be mistaken, was the whole question, lots of fans were wondering, is there a bathroom on the Jupiter 2, Bill, or <laughs> do they just know how to hold really long? Well, the, the, the blueprints certainly show it, and you can ac- uh, actually see the uh, front part of the uh, bathroom in between the uh, two of the uh, staterooms, and what it, it consists of in that part is just uh, like a, a alcove there. And apparently, just for washing up with uh, ultraviolet light, I guess. And then uh, there's an accordion door, and that's where the uh, shower and the uh, toilets blueprinted in anyway. Okay, so this is on the lower deck, and it's near the staterooms, like yeah, it's between. There's uh, from the galley. There's two staterooms, and then you have a little recess there, and that's where the uh, bathroom is. And then there's another stateroom after that. Okay, folks, you heard it. The blueprints don't lie. There is a bathroom on the Jupiter too. There's a lot of other stuff that shows up through. <laughs> throughout the season that, uh, or that doesn't show up, that's actually featured on the blueprints, right? Yeah. The elevator was actually meant to go up into a uh, navigational dome that came up through the, uh, the ceiling, and that had like a sextant-like equipment for making sightings. Okay, so it was not just going to stop on the first, on the upper deck. It could actually go up towards the upper hull. Interesting. Yeah. 
it would continue up. Now, is that evidenced on the filming miniature? Is that actually displayed on that? Well, that's one of the, uh, in the miniature, you can actually see the uh, where that hall uh, hatch is. You know, it's kind of recessed there. On the upper deck to it, there's uh, push buttons, uh, you know, that are supposedly open it up. And looks like you can actually, uh, you know, go up beyond the uh, ceiling there. Interesting. Okay. You know, we, one of the things that always was curious to us is this chariot is a big piece of uh, hardware. Is there basically supposed to be a way for that chariot to get in and out of the Jupiter II? The blueprints uh, show that there was a uh, chariot hatch that would lower when it's on its landing legs. Uh, they also had a uh, ramp that would lower for the chariot to drive out. Of course, the uh, full-size spaceship was never big enough, even the, the one they built, big enough to uh, you know, actually have the chariot drive up into it. You can learn all kinds of things from studying those blueprints, and they are fascinating. So you got quite a collection of those as well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I just love them because it, being interested in filming, this kind of takes you behind the scenes, and you can you know see how they did things. And oh yeah, it's very interesting. Even though we all know some of the things, they didn't always follow the blueprints exactly, but at least it gives you a good starting point, doesn't it? Yeah, like the uh, chariot uh, blueprint, it actually shows a uh, table between the uh, four seats in the back. So I think it was meant to be more of a like a home away from home, like a more of an RV vehicle. So that's apparently why they had all the curtains that you could close around it. Would have been nice to see them uh, opened up once in a while. Well, speaking of the chariot, didn't you collaborate a little bit with uh, John Antonellis and his project to build the chariot replica? Well, uh, he called me up after he got the idea for it and was looking for blueprints. And yeah, I shared some of that stuff with him and also uh, others too, like Chris Pappas. Uh, he's very knowledgeable about the, uh, the hardware of the show. So I think he reached out to me just because I had built this uh, radio control chariot and had done a lot of research on it. That was really exciting to actually see it after he'd finished it and took it to one of the conventions. I haven't had the privilege of getting to see it in person one day, but I do hope to do that. I'm trying to figure out when they're going to have it on display. We need to get it out to Lyons, Nebraska, though. That's where we need that chariot. You need to, <laughs> you need to be able to film that thing. That would be awesome. So I think of his future plans, he'd like to take it out to uh, Trona Pinnacles and actually drive it out there. Uh, so that would be really a, you know, something to see. Wouldn't that be? Oh, man, we need a GoFundMe but, project to finance that because that would be huge. But he did uh, fulfill one of my uh, unbelievable dreams. He actually let me drive the uh, chariot around the parking lot after one convention before he loaded up. So that was really you know, special to me. Oh, man. I'm jealous. It's so nice, too, that he lets uh, fans uh, climb in it and, you know, sit in it. Because you know, a lot of you know people that build uh, replicas of cars like that, you know, it's always roped off and, you know, mm -hmm. keep your hands off. But he's so gracious and generous that he lets people, uh, you know, get in it and really experience it. It's on my bucket list to go visit that. I've, I've visited Lions. I got to see the chariot, too. So I think we're kind of being extremely greedy with your time here, Bill. And I thank you for that. But before we wrap things up, I want to flash forward because we talked about the interior set that you built in your home. But that wasn't really the end of the story. You took it to another level. You bought a theater property in your hometown of Lions and... Now you've turned that theater, which, by the way, I also happen to know you worked at as a teenager, right, as a projectionist. The same year that Lost in Space came out, uh, when I was 13, I got a job at the uh, theater as a projectionist. So I worked uh, there through high school. What was the theater called then? It was just called the Lions Theater. The Lions Theater. 
Well, that's very cool. So you've turned it into your own independent movie production facility, Cosmic Film Studio. Give us the history of the building, the location, and what you're doing there. It's not so much a serious studio, but it's more like a playground for me. But the reason I bought it is because after I built my uh, interior set in my basement, I thought it'd be fun just to film a little fan film down there of a loss in space. But uh, it was kind of limiting there. So I thought it'd be uh, nice to actually have a section of the exterior hall on the planet. So I was kind of looking around for a shed to film in. And then when this uh, old theater building came up for sale, I uh, you know jumped on it because you know, not only they had the memories of working there and you know, watching movies there, it was a pretty o- nice open space inside the auditorium there where I could build mm-hmm. this, at least a section of the exterior hall and a little bit of the uh, planet there too. Oh yeah, it's a nice big space and you've definitely made the most of it there. It was closed in 1985 and the furniture store next door expanded into it. So they leveled the floor and changed it quite a bit. But uh, when I bought it about four years ago, I tried to... Uh, restore at least part of it back to the way it used to be. So I restored the lobby to the way it looked when I worked there. And also uh, the projection room, the uh, guy that had originally had the uh, theater and taken out the projectors, uh, sold them back to me. So the projection room is just like it originally was too. Uh, it's a really neat thing. And the lobby and, and the area before you enter the uh, studio proper is filled with all kinds of movie posters and things. It's a great place uh, to see. But then once you walk through that, it's like a, a small scale film studio. I mean, half of it is like you said, it's a, it looks like an alien set, basically, with a partial Jupiter 2 exterior. Then you have a certain part of it that's got green screen basically around the walls so that you can do some special effects work there. So Tell us how you use it. Well, I tried to set it up, you know, kind of like the what they did on the original series. So I just have a small section of the exterior of the uh, spaceships, you know, from the viewport over to the airlock, because yeah, obviously it's, I didn't have the room for anything bigger than that. And then on three walls around that, too, I also have a cyclorama, and I have my fake, you know, boulders and trees and everything around it. But it's also nice because I can use it for, uh, you know, displaying some of my larger props, too, like I made a laser drill tripod and, you know, a cosmonium statue, which, you know, was getting a little stuff like that. It was, you know, too big to have in the house. Yeah. <laughs> and then also in the back part of it, I had a little more room, so I fixed it up a little bit like the underground city from the pilot. So, And also I can kind of combine that, too, with the uh, Kanto set from uh, Follow the Leader. So I have a sarcophagus there with a you know, mummy in it. And, and then also there's a uh, pivoting door from the pilot, too, and the you alcove know, with a uh, you know, mummy in there, too. It's like a little playground. It was really something cool. And you got some of the other props. And speaking of props, you also have models that you've built. You've got basically a studio scale, four foot Jupiter 2 model that's very cool. And I've seen some of the films you've done with that. You've got all kinds of props. I think you mentioned to me that you have tried to reproduce a prop from every single episode. So for example, one of my faves was I got to play with the Keeper's staff and... uh, (laughs) Put my poor uh, <laughs> suffering wife, Lisa, under a trance using the staff, and we had some fun with taking pictures in your studio with that, so that was a real blast. That staff is really cool. Everyone should have one. Yeah, it's kind of fun to uh, you know build stuff like that. 
sometimes uh, I can use you know blueprints, but in this case, I just had to use screen grabs to kind of scale it. Well, yours is actually better than the original, I think, because that one had, they had to have it actually wired up for power to, so that the staff and the bulb on top would light up. But yours is basically self-contained, battery operated, and all you have to do is like hit a little pressure switch on the bottom of it, and it lights up. So you did one better than the show, my man. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be quite as bright as that one because uh, you know the studio lights aren't as bright as those were. Good point. Well, this is your hobby area, you said, but you are actually using it to film your own series of films. Tell us about that. I was originally, you know, wanted to do a Lost in Space fan film, and you know that's why you know built a exterior hall too. And but uh, you know, started to realize that you know the, a lot of the studios have become more protective of their intellectual properties. And you know, if I did make a Lost in Space fan film, it, you know, might possibly never be shown because of copyright violations. So uh, that's why I decided to make more of a, a completely original series called Cosmic Cat, which is uh, mm. you know completely original. But um, I still want to capture the uh, feeling of the original Lost in Space series and the, that feeling and sense of adventure, uh, being on alien planets and you know, encountering alien machines. And, and I like the uh, kind of the surrealistic look of uh, stage-based planets. So it's it's it has different premise, music, and characters uh, are all different, but I still want to capture the spirit of the original series. You know, another thing that's uh, kind of has a connection to Lost in Space, too, is that uh, I'm trying to do everything practical. So there's no, not be any uh, computer graphic images. Uh, the sets are real. All the effects are real, re- using real smoke or anything. And, and miniatures, too. All, they're right. all uh, real miniatures. And like I said, I had to make a different miniature. I, it incorporates a little bit of the Jupiter 2 in it, but it, it's more elongated, something like from you know Flash Gordon. It's a very cool model. It's great. And you're gracious enough to give us some behind-the-scenes shots on your Facebook posts and everything. So it's called Cosmic Cat. Does that mean there's an actual cat in this uh, series you're doing? Yes, I'm using my real cat, but I also have some uh, stunt cats too, some radio control ones, you know, whatever I need for a particular scene. By coincidence, uh, you know, the characters' names are uh, Will and Penny in the series, and Will is actually really my name because I'm William. But mm-hmm. when I went to the animal shelter to find a, a cat, I wanted a black cat to use in it. And the the cat that I picked was already given the name Penny. So it was a choice between Penny and Mitten. So that was kind of a no-brainer. That was a no-brainer, man. And that's some kismet there. So you went to a yeah. shelter and found a cat that was already named Penny. Am I getting yeah. that right? <laughs> Yeah, and she reached out to me through the you know the cage too. So I think she wanted to be uh, my series. As of this recording, you guys have already been filming the first episode, and how is the cat actress doing so far? Well, it's a little more difficult than a you know regular actor. You have to kind of use treats to get them to do what you want. But uh, yeah, she did pretty good. And anything else that she can't do, then I have you know some stunt cats and radio control ones that I can use. Those are cool. Those are Disney-esque animatronic cats you've done there. I'm I'm just blown away by your ingenuity with that stuff. So you said it's a series now. How many episodes are planned? Uh, I actually have quite a few written already. Twelve are fully scripted, but they're going to be shorts, like uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes long. 
And I've already got the first one filmed and I'm working on editing it right now. So by the time this podcast comes out, it should be on YouTube. Ah, okay. So what's the planned premiere date? I'd like to do it October 16th, just because that happens to be the launch day of the uh, Jupiter 2. Ah, that'd be great. October 16th of 2018. And you're planning on premiering it uh, on YouTube or is there another online venue? Or uh, I'm trying to get it ready for a film festival here in Nebraska. So after that, when I get back, I'll put it on YouTube. Awesome. Well, we definitely want to be linked up with that as well so people can find it. Cosmic Cat, filmed at Cosmic Films Studios. Lots of folks are eagerly waiting the premiere of Cosmic Cat, and I'm certainly one of them. So we'll try to keep up with you. So what's the best way for folks to keep up with what's going on with you and Cosmic Film Studios? Uh, I do have a website uh, called cosmicfilmstudio.com and also I have a Cosmic Films uh, Facebook page too. Your website's cool and I think you have a great webmaster if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, my son James he's the one that does all the IT work for me. You're very fortunate because he does good work. That's a great website so. Okay, I guess we'll wrap it up. Bill Hedges, thanks again for joining us on Alpha Control. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today, getting to hear your stories, all the background information. I know it's going to be a treat for our listeners. We're going to link to your Cosmic Film Studio website in our show notes. And there's also a number of other pages and links that you provided, which we will link to. Anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? Well, I just would say that uh, anybody that's you know, happens to be passing through eastern Nebraska, they're certainly welcome to stop by. I always like meeting other fans of the show. That's awesome. Thanks again, Bill, for coming on Alpha Control. We really had a great time talking with you and uh, can't wait to see you again and visit more. Well, thanks. It's uh, you know, honored being uh, included with some of your other interviews. Well, the pleasure is all mine. So until we talk again, take care, Bill, and we will see you later. Okay. Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with Lost in Space recreator and independent filmmaker, Mr. Bill Hedges. You can tell he's truly passionate about Lost in Space and his own creative movie productions. I can't wait to see his film series, Cosmic Cat. In the meantime, we will be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.